0: Shalom and welcome to Mamish, the oi and joy of family. I'm your host, Lori Fine, here to bring you laughs, stories, and a little walkaway wisdom in this wild parenting ride where our community and our traditions are our greatest guide. I'm so incredibly excited to bring you here today, a guest who is Just absolutely incredible. I heard her on another podcast and I said, we've got to get her on Momish immediately. So I'm super excited to bring you here today, Avigail Gimple. Avigail is a mother of six. She lives in Israel and she has taken upon herself to develop an incredible expertise in special needs children, specifically with ADHD. So we're going to talk about it both from her own personal perspective as a mom, which I think is obviously what Momish is here to bring you, and also as a, as really an expert in that field as well. Avigail, welcome, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you so much for having me here. What a pleasure. When you said that you're celebrating big families and that's what you're here for, I said, wow, this is, you are a woman I wanna to talk to because there's nothing I love more than my big family. Thank God. When people ask me what I do and I say, well, I'm a mom and the rest is window dressing and, you know, and I love the work I do, but that that is, that's my main, the center of my world for sure.
0: Oh, thank you so much for coming on. I cannot even imagine what you are going through right now. It's just unbelievable that you, this like gorgeous mom, and I saw some of your videos and you're so energetic and full of life and that, that you should be faced with this horror. I can only hope that it is just over very, very soon and you can get back to doing all the other amazing things that you do. Avigail was raised in the United States, attended college in New York at Toro, and then made Aliyah in 1990 with her husband, Daniel Gimple. And they have six children along the way. They took a break which i'd love to hear about in 2003 she moved with three young children to moscow russia of all places that must have been a fun place to be jewish and since then has been a college instructor has written two books hyper healing and hyper healing show me the science to help parents figure out a plan to deal with their adhd children and become their coaches and Abigail, the first thing I always ask every guest is, tell me about your children. How old are they? How many sons? How many daughters? So I'm a, I'm a
1: real yucky. My husband always picks on me for that. I have got three girls and three boys, and it was obviously going to be that way. And so my oldest is a daughter. She's she's 24, and she's just finishing her schooling to become an electrician, believe it or not. We like the out-of-the-box thing. She's also a makeup artist. So totally different things going on. My second is, well, he was finished being a soldier and now he's a soldier again. He was going to start his schooling, you know, launch life after the army. And he's been called back and he is heading into Gaza as we speak. And my third is 20. She is, she's, she just got, oh, she's 21. She just got married. We're expecting our first grandchild. And yeah, is that exciting? (laughs) Thanks. We're, we're pretty darn excited about that. And, uh, is, uh, she's been in the middle of her schooling to become a natural healer. And then I've got an 18 year old son who's heading toward the army, but is studying a little bit of Torah right now was until the war broke out. And then, you know, everything fell apart. All of his rabbis, everyone just headed off to the army and he's basically fixing cars while in his free time. Cause he's awesome. And yeah. I've got a, a 15-year-old whose school is right in direct line of missile fire. So they've been trying to find places every week to meet up and, and study, actually. And then I've got my my 13-year-old
0: daughter, who is uh, still in elementary school. Wow. Wow. So you have just a little bit on your plate. Just <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. And And tell me a little about you and where your life is right now. What are you up to? So
1: I've been, I mean, pre-war, during war, that's a big question. So pre-war, my work is completely focused on helping families with children struggling with ADHD, also working with couples where one of the members of the couple is struggling with ADHD symptoms. That's that's a lot of fun. I also am teaching in Herzog College. And uh, so I have a private practice and as well as the the college. I'm very, very blessed. I've been very happy with my work one of my books became a bestseller on amazon at wow. at, some point, at some point last year which was uh, pretty pretty incredible the first one hyperhealing so i've been really really focused on that and then the war broke out and you know everything changed really overnight and all the things that all of us here and 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 there as well i think everything that we have been passionate about kind of we we putting it on ice for a little bit i am continuing to work with my clients and and i I really enjoyed that as well. But now I've been been working with the Heber Kadisha to help uh, prepare bodies of of our massacred sisters, mothers, aunts, grandmothers, daughters for burial. Um, That work is completed now. And I am now working very hard on getting all of the protective gear needed for our soldiers into the country, as well as organizing for for women and uh, tefillah groups and You know trying to do whatever we can to
0: win this war without casualties yeah it's it's heart-wrenching wow i mean one of the things about this show that i love is i i feel like when people talk about having large families they have this mistaken preconception that to have a large family, you can't really have time to do anything else with your life. And what I have found in doing the show is that the moms who have large families seem to find a way to do an enormous amount in addition to raising their family. And it, it sure sounds Absolutely. like you're in we that. Had,
1: we we drag them along as our little helpers. The, the other night we had, uh, let's just give you a little example. We, my son called. He said, "You know, they're they're deploying his unit and and the entire battalion into position there by Gaza." And okay. we had this small opportunity to run over there and just give him a hug, give him a bracha before he he heads in. And I had I had organized with a friend a huge haf- 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 al-chala for that evening.
0: What is and a haf- al for the listeners? Who we have a mix of listeners of various absolutely. <laughs> so we have a special
1: mitzvah. Commandments is special for Jewish women really specifically that when we bake our challah for Shabbat we we take a certain amount of it it used to be given to the priests and 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 we'd separate that off and every week the the Jewish women would come and give a loaf of bread from their dough to the priests now we don't have that anymore because we don't we don't have the temple and we don't have like a very clear understanding of who's a priest and who's not we have some of that but we now we separate off the bread and we pray and we say a certain blessing and it's something that that we can really we as women when we get together and do that there's a lot of power in that prayer and since the war broke out many women have been getting together to bring their dough along separate that special amount for the Kohen and for the priest and and say lots of prayers together, sing together, share uh, thoughts of from the Torah portion together. It's really very, very powerful. And, and I feel like those prayers go directly up to heaven. So I had organized wow. this entire evening and I, I suddenly realized I cannot attend. I have to go see my son and give him his blessing before he goes on to the next stage of his journey. And I asked my two oldest daughters if, if they would just go instead of me. And that's what it is. You have these big kids and then they go and they and they did an incredible job and they helped run the entire event. And
0: that's how we learn to adjust with our big families. Wow. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. I totally relate to that. There have been at least 10 things this week where I've assigned my children to do something that I was meant to do, but simply couldn't manage. And whether it's, helping out in the house or whether it's helping out with neighbors, bringing, we have a couple of neighbors who, you know, are going through illness, who we give food to from time to time just to help them out and, and make things easier for them. And they're, you know, they'll, they'll cook it for me. They'll bring it for me. When those, when those times crunch happen. So it's very, it's, it's great. I agree. hundred percent agree. So, You know, so Abigail, tell me a little bit about what your family life was like as you were raising them, a little about your personal philosophy of parenting or how your family came together, maybe what you did for fun, what type of household you run, just a little bit about your family life. Giving you the vibe of the Gimpel family.
1: We are are a lot of fun. We are a lot of fun. My husband always says, we do fun. And, uh, and we do, my kids are all extremely energetic. I got into ADHD before I met my children, believe it or not. It was at the time that I was, you know, fine, trying to find my husband. I was teaching in a boy's school in New York and the boys were, I had a good bit of energetic boys in my class and ADHD <laughs> was just coming into style. And a couple of my boys were, were being medicated and I, I felt like I was not feeling their personality. So I, ask the mothers to just give me a chance, really the parents, usually the mothers are the ones making these decisions, to give me a chance to meet the boys as they were. And I really worked very hard to see if I could make a program that would welcome these boys and their strengths and their struggles into my classroom. And we had a great time together. The boys started learning. I kind of cracked the code a little bit back then. And I love these kids, their energy, their curiosity. I always describe it as them like drinking from a waterfall. They just like wanted to take everything in, like they couldn't even be bothered to get a cup. And at the same time, I met my husband, who was like the most energetic and confident person I'd ever met in my entire life. And it, it never put it together like, oh, he's very similar to my students. Anyhow. Totally. You really like this kind of personality. That's obvious. So he, so anyway, one after the next, our kids are being born with this like insane energy. I love it. It's, it's over the top. They were like born without a fear gene and they just, they just charge through life with, you know, a lot going on, a lot of interests, a lot of energy, a lot of curiosity and questions. And then they started being diagnosed with with ADHD. It's interesting because I, you had mentioned that I lived in Russia. So when my my oldest was a little girl, he was I mean, she was so energetic that she she actually in, in utero that she kicked me so hard that I actually still have a numb spot just speaking. Since we're speaking of mothers. Yep. Yep. I'm not the only one. I know I'm not. But in, in Moscow, she was in a very small class because how many religious girls are there in the middle of Moscow who are Hebrew speakers? Um, and she did great. The teacher totally got her. And then when we moved back to Israel, I stick her into a classroom of 30 adorable girls. And within a week, the school is calling me and saying, oh my God, do something with your child. We cannot contain her in our classroom. So that, that really began the process of diagnosis and uh, considering medication and all that stuff. And it, the process itself was really bothersome to me because it, it seemed very skin deep. There was really no analysis going on because the entire diagnostic process was based on a checklist. And then the doctor tells you that there's something wrong with your kid's brain. And I'm saying like, how did we get from this checklist of behaviors, which could be caused by many, many different things to something wrong with the brain. Where are the studies? So that's when I started really taking a very deep dive into trying to figure out what the study said, because I'm a mama bear and I really want my kids to have the very best care that they can. And uh, it, it was very, very missing, very missing what was going on and a lot of pressure to medicate. And what turns out very shockingly, is that the studies indicating that there's something wrong neurologically are the very, very best study we have from 2017 indicates that that 5% of all kids with ADHD maybe have something different going on in their brain, but they don't separate out the kids that are medicated from the unmedicated kids. So it's a mess of a study. And that's our gold standard today. And so basically what I discovered is chances that there's something wrong with my child's brain, like neurologically, we uh, are are very low. So something else is happening And, and every child. And that's something I say to parents all the time. Your child's struggling. Something's going on for your child. It's probably doesn't not living in their brain. Something else is happening and we have to be detectives and curious enough about this child to figure out what's really happening.
0: Well, I can tell you that I really, really relate to this conversation. I have been advised to medicate children. I have been pressured. I have one kid medicated for a very short time against my better judgment. I had that checklist. I saw that check. Uh, I, you know, for those of you who maybe haven't had this experience, there was a checklist that I I don't know if it was the same as what you had, Avi but, you know, it was this, I just remember it was this this copy that looked like it had been copied 3,000 times. It was barely legible and it was just a checklist of, you know, do you ever, I don't know, feel stressed? Do you ever feel like you can't handle the workload? Do you have, you know, very basic things that to my mind are part of life, part of everybody's life to some extent. And certainly if you feel like you can't handle a lot of these things um, on a regular basis or kids who act out on a regular basis, then yes, of course, something has to be done to try to help people adjust to the society that they're living in. But, you know, I'm personally a little bit of a disorganized person sometimes and I had a kid of mine recently tell me, you know, wow, you know, mom, what if you had taken the medication and what if you had gotten diagnosed as ADHD, maybe you would have accomplished something. I was like, you know, I feel like I'm okay with where I am in life. I got five kids. I've got two degrees from Ivy League schools. I got a full time job. You know, I'm not sure how much more I would have done if I had had medication and also what would have been the price I would have paid because, like you said, I think many people have seen in their own lives, whether it's with their own children or their cousins, friends, what have you, that the medication does, in many cases, kind of dull the personality. I mean, it's, it's basically intended to do that so that the kids are more manageable in a large classroom, like you said, and so, you know, what is being lost along with what's being potentially gained by that. So you said you had one daughter who was, who the teachers thought needed to be diagnosed with ADHD. Did you have others of your six? Oh my goodness. She just launched it. There, there was one after the next. At
1: some point, like a kid four, I'm like, okay, I get it. I get the trend and I just stopped taking them for diagnosis. And I was like, yeah, we got this. We got this. But the point is that at that point, I had already done enough of my own research, A, into what causes ADHD symptoms. And that's really my my whole first book is about what are causing your child's ADHD symptoms and what to do about it. And this is something that should be what this is what the neurologist should be telling us when they diagnose. The diagnosis is less significant than what's behind it what's causing. So for one child it's going to be an instant gratification personality, for another child it's going to be abuse, neglect, anxiety, things like that, you know, going through trauma. My fear right now living in this war zone is that suddenly, you know, when it's all over, we're going to have 50% of the students in Israeli classrooms are going to suddenly be diagnosed with ADHD just because of the PTSD and the trauma that that the kids are facing right now. And honestly, you know, going through this right now, I'm a person without ADHD. I feel like I've ADHD all day long. I can never f- remember what I'm what I'm was saying. I' drop something somewhere and then walk away from it because my mind is is occupied with a hundred different things. So we're definitely going to see that. We also have physiological things which is fun that my daughter is training to to with alternative healing because uh, she and I could work as a team because when you see a kid with asthma allergies, and all sorts of other physiological symptoms, constant running noses, rashes, uh, a lot of fever it's been on antibiotics a hundred times. Those things are also causing ADHD symptoms. And that has to be cleared up. That has to be resolved. You can't put a pill on top of that. You're just masking it. And we also have the the screen addiction and sleep issues. Now, so those are the the major ones, but there are many more that come with it. When I meet with a, a client, I ask a thousand questions. I need to know what's going on. I am investigating to find out what is in this child's story that is that needs to be looked at more carefully. And then we build a program out of that, not out of a checklist. Checklists, uh, checklists are literally no interest to me. So when I was so when my kids were being diagnosed one after the next, I was able to kind of look at and see what was going on for them and try to figure out what would be the right kind of program for them. And each one of them needed something different. And, and, that, and that's what I've been doing for all these years. Also helpful was taking a deep dive into the medication itself, because my gut was saying to me it doesn't seem right to be medicating an entire generation of children. ADHD is supposed to be between 3 and 6% of the popla- population, and it is nowhere near that. In most, in most states in America, you're between 15 and 18% of, of boys, no, up to 20% of boys, and closer to 15 for girls. So this thing has spun out of control, and most of them, the first line of treatment is a stimulant drug so we have to really get a grip
0: and start respecting our children a little bit more interesting well i i couldn't agree with you more i mean i i think that in the jewish community it might even be higher and maybe that's because we kind of tend to parent you know intensely we care a great deal about our children we want to do what's best for them and we're trying to absorb the advice of so many professionals in terms of what they think will be in our children's best interest and it comes from a good place and yet when you see that i remember someone at my daughter's camp said that a third of the kids were on medication daily medication even in summer camp and you know i know that the schools have said that they have that similar numbers of about a third kids get extra time get extra this i mean my children's high school fresh yeshiva in Paramus, New Jersey. Yeah, Jersey. They stopped giving extra time for any for people for diagnoses. They just started putting everyone having the same test period right before lunch. And if you need to continue, you need extra time, you just keep on going and it's available to everyone because it got to the point where so many people were getting special accommodations that it felt like it was unfair to anybody whose parents perhaps resisted getting a diagnosis or didn't have the resources to do that. So they just cut it off, which, you know, obviously also was controversial. So do you feel like there is a role for medication in some cases, or do you feel like in almost in most cases, you can address it without that?
1: I would say so far, and I'm very blessed, I've, I've been able to address uh, the issues causing the ADHD symptoms in most of my clients. And we've been able to really help them gain the skills that they needed to function in a very, very incredibly high level way. So there's no reason not to, because the person is not disordered. Something's bothering them. Something's off. And that needs to be adjusted. Just like someone who's has back pain, we're not going to call them disordered. We're going to get, we're going to help them get an adjustment. And then they're going to be able to get back to exercising and get back to a fully functioning life. So that's the way I'm seeing it. There were cases where the child himself, and usually, you know, it's the older boys that are in yeshiva that like have to get good grades have to you know in the whole gemara have to like very very high achievement standards especially here in Israel and that would also be for kids going into the ivy leagues and things like that in america you know the ones who were really pushing themselves to to be their best but in the cases i've seen the kids were very ashamed to do things like change their diet So the other kids would see that they were eating weird food or it's not so weird, by the way, or exercising between classes or completely focusing on what the teacher was saying and recording it and then copying somebody else's notes. These are different ideas that have helped a lot of students and and specifics and not I wouldn't say for everybody, but for specific students, it's been a lifesaver. But for some kids, they were just too embarrassed to do it, in which case. There's nowhere to turn. If you're not willing to participate in the program, it's not magic. It's hard work. And the parents have to be able to participate, and the kid has to be willing and wanting to participate. If that's the case, then the medication's not needed. One other area where I would say that I would recommend medication would be for very short term use. And interestingly, if you looked at the inserts of all of these medications, Just like antibiotics and every other medication, it says, do not use this medication for more than two weeks. After two weeks, consult with your doctor. So for short-term use, I would say, let's say a child what I call bleeding. They are not making it socially, emotionally, academically. Everybody's yelling at them all the time. They are isolated and miserable. I would say, give them a little bit of boost and then immediately started on on an intervention program on on the hyper healing program that's that's the my program (laughs) but any program as long as you're getting good high quality care uh that that is addressing root causes instead of symptoms that's my rule it's got to address root causes and uh so if you if the child needs a little bit of a boost then there is a place for medication. But in the research I've done, what I've found is across the board, long-term use of medication always puts the child at a detriment, always. What do you mean? That, what kind of detriment? Well, there's all sorts of different choices here. You want the entire laundry list, right? <laughs> from starts from children who are, and we're talking about studies that look at kids who are medicated for over a year and then over three years. So what we're seeing is that the brain shifts, the brain the brain chemistry shifts after a person's on medication for a year and they become dependent on the medication. So whereas they might, the kids in general, I know that because I medicated three of my children for a period of time. So I know that the kids don't like taking the medication. Absolutely not. They'd rather not, they run away, they dump it on the floor, they hope you didn't notice There are kids who like to take it, but mostly the kids are not like, give me my dose, Uh, but their brain becomes addicted. Which is a good
0: thing, right? I mean, we wouldn't necessarily want our kid begging for their dose.
1: (laughs) I think that's great. But, you know, physically, so parents are saying my kid's not addicted because my kid doesn't even want to take it. Their brain becomes addicted because the neurotransmitter dopamine starts being produced in shorter supply due to the medication because our body needs a balance. And and therefore, once, yeah, so that I explained that in my second book, Show Me the Science, exactly how that mechanism works. But once your body is producing less of that dopamine, which comes from our gut, which is why cleaning the gut is a very good idea. So once we have, <laughs> once we're out of balance, then the body absolutely
0: needs a hit of the Ritalin. So in other whatever. words, people it's- who feed their kids nothing but mac and cheese for 20 years, that might not be... Ideal not for... a great choice. <laughs>
1: not not great for the neurotransmitters. Let's just say we have
0: but... a little story in my family where my we had a situation where we were um, living in Washington D.C. We had our first four kids. We were living in a two bedroom apartment. It was a little crowded, and we had been looking to move, but we had never found anything we really liked. And then my husband got this offer to move to um, a different city, to move to New York area. And we decided to take it and his new job was like, you have to come right now and it was the middle of the year. So we worked out that he found a place to stay in New York and would come back on weekends. And I was there with my four kids, including a newborn who had some health issues and kind of just managing, selling the house, moving, you know, four little tiny kids, the oldest I think was six. and. It was a lot. And I remember saying to one of my friends, how many nights a week can I serve them pasta and butter and not ruin their lives? And she said, I don't know. I've been doing it every night for the last 15 years. So I guess it's, it works out. But anyway, we do what we got to do. But one of the things that, that I, here, maybe behind what you're saying, but I don't think you've actually said it explicitly, is I think this dependence, one of the reasons why I have resisted even the diagnosis, but also the, the the recommended treatments for my children who people have brought this up with, is that I would rather they were just imperfect, their imperfect selves, and learn how to adjust as best you can as your regular self without needing that without becoming dependent on a medication to get you through your daily life. I think that one of the things is that I feel that the people around me don't, they don't want to accept that maybe I'm not that good at X, Y, and Z. Maybe I have this strength and not that strength, and that's okay. And maybe I won't go to the Ivy League school or the best yeshiva, and that's also okay. And I think that some of the drive to medicate and to let's say overtreat in some cases can be because of that sort of feeling to be your absolute best whatever that means instead of accepting that everybody has certain strengths and weaknesses and somebody's going to be you know an electrician instead of what have you a college professor right and so yeah the world would not be a very
1: happy place if we were all college professors especially nowadays my god but yeah definitely that's part of it we do have this obsessive need for everybody to be successful at everything, even though we're not successful at everything, yet we just like cannot handle it when our children are not successful at everything. But that's, and that's something that I work more with adults with. They get stuck in this place where they're supposed to be perfect. And I'm like, and who are and who told you that you're supposed to be perfect? Where did you get that from? Often it comes from what I call the curses of our childhood, where we're told that we are something or we're not something, or we'll never be something or we'll always be something. all all of those, those are toxic words. And I beg and plead with all of my the parents of my small clients to eradicate those from their from their entire vocabulary that there's there, there is never that. And that's the only never we can do is never say those words um, because those are curses for our children and Mm -hmm. telling the child that they're disabled or that there's something wrong with them or that they could never be a certain thing. That's not true. We don't get to determine that. Only they get to determine that. What we have to do is give them every opportunity to choose their way. And therefore, once they've chosen the journey that they wanna take, we travel alongside them and we help them with those opportunities, but we don't get to determine who they are
0: and who they're not. Wow, okay. Well, you know, maybe that's a good transition to get back to your own family. And you said you're the fun family and you have these kids who are pursuing many different directions. And what was it like to, you know, how? what do you feel about your parenting style, your husband's parenting style and the home that you created that, that led to that type of family? So we have an
1: interesting combo of I'm pretty organized and on top of the kids' schedules and extracurricular stuff and school and homework. So that was really my area. My husband is very much into we got to get out and do stuff. So every single Friday, also part of my program is everybody has to exercise, you know, even throughout the war. I honestly think that probably going to CrossFit for me has been my saving grace just to work off the anxiety that's constantly sitting in the pit of my stomach but but we we are, are exercisers and we try to eat healthy so every single friday we've gone out on on hikes as a family every vacation we go out on hikes as a family and we we also let our children lead we let them choose where we we're going to go and then let them be the leaders of any hike that we're taking but we like to do things together we really enjoy sitting together and at the Shabbat table, telling stories, singing. We love to dance. I didn't love to dance. That was all my husband's contribution. And every single one of my kids is a dancer, which I I'm so grateful for. So we, we find ourselves wow. dancing a
0: lot. Yeah. When and you say a dancer, great. you mean like for fun or you mean they've been trained, they've got, they, they're. Performing, so two of what my have girls,
1: you. one of my daughters uh, is actually a professional dancer. And uh, we chose her high school very carefully. She went to a dance performing arts high school here in Israel, um, which you can do here. Like you can specialize in that. And it's a religious high school. And she came out with a wonderful education. And her ADHD literally vanished when she went into ninth grade. And she was, she was really, she knows this. A lot of the stories in my book are of her. She kept, she kept me busy. Let's just say.
0: in kind (laughs) Like what's one of the things that,
1: give us a, give us a taste, give us a taste. (laughs) oh my god she i mean she would like get up in front of the classroom and like on a chair in middle of class and be like don't listen to the teacher guys listen to me like that was like not a strange thing to happen. what what was
0: the revolution that she was trying
1: to lead (laughs) it was always a new revolution and she's still leading revolutions and she's amazing And yeah, constantly, constantly, she, she doesn't like injustice, which is very much an ADHD style thing. Like she could not tolerate any kind of injustice, any kid being picked on. She would, you know, march out there and make sure that that didn't happen. She's really like, she fills the room uh, in the best way possible, but she went to ninth grade and she's a dancer. So she would dance throughout the day. She basically put her leotard on in the morning. And she, you know, they would pray and then there would be a dance class and then there'd be a Torah class and then there'd be another dance class and, and then math. And it was and and the movement and the focus that that gave her solved her ADHD problem. She's still incredibly energetic. And I mean, you give her a microphone and she I, I actually invite her to every every semester to speak to my college students just for half an hour. Cause she's so dynamic and she could talk about her ADHD process in an incredible way. And, and, but the dancing was, was the key to her success with a lot of other things that, that I, I write about in the book, but that was, that was a huge turning point for her, but we do, we have, we have a great time together and we love the energy. My neighbor next door right over there, he's, he's always laughing about it. They love coming over here just to hang out the neighbors. We always have an open home and uh, he says, like you guys are the only family I know that at six in the morning are throwing a soccer ball around the front yard, and we are. <laughs> and we also, yeah, once a month we get the kids in the car at Was dawn. That I don't know. He still likes <laughs> us, but we we get the kids in the car early in the morning and we go when we go pray at Marat Hamachpelah. We just did that this Friday. What is mar- Marat Hamachpelah for our listeners? That is the cave of the patriarchs and matriarchs in Hebron. Okay. So there we, we pray there once a month and we go as a family and then we go out to eat afterwards. And, and it's, it's something that my
0: family could do because of their high energy. Wow. And so you, in other words, connect with that sort of ancient part of Judaism where our ancestors are buried once a month. Yes, before
1: we before. go, you know, the, the Friday right before the the new month, the new Jewish month. We've also run marathons together so, okay, I got to get my kids moving its is max. obvious. <laughs> What's that?
0: So we use the energy to its max. It's awesome. That's awesome. Well, I, I, that's, that's incredible. I think that's a little aspirational for a lot of people, but that's like such, such a beautiful way to bring your family together. So, you know, I want to ask you how you, you know, your whole life is so Im- immersed in Jewish life and Jewish thought, but it, you know, having, living in Israel, sending your kids to religious schools, living a religious life, in fact, even going into these ancient areas and connecting with the the ancient past of Judaism. But I'm just wondering if you wanted to give a general, I if there's something that you would tell our listeners about. Jewish life and Jewish practice that you think every family could bring in and that has been especially meaningful for your family? So I love the
1: structure that Judaism provides. It gives our, first of all, having that Friday night dinner where we all have to stop and, and focus together and be a family. It anchors the whole family and kids with ADHD symptoms definitely struggle with this kind of being up like a kite all the time, running, jumping from thing to thing. Everything interests them. They're trying to take everything in or they are extremely addicted to their devices, to their screens. So having that the, the phones off completely for 25 hours a week has been absolutely golden. It, it saves us. We, we get to bond. We get to share time together. I also love the part of, of Judaism where kids have a chance to lead. If you take your children to the synagogue and you have an extra energetic child, then, then they could go ahead and go up and sing and they could lead the way and they could organize the synagogue. And there's there's a lot of roles that the children uh, can take, that it's not just parent and, and adult dictated, but rather the children can take initiative. And that's a big, big thing for these kids with with ADHD symptoms, and I've been focusing more on the energetic kids, but also the kids who are more of the dreamers, to be able to focus them and give them a task to do that's more meaningful, that's for the community, uh, brings them
0: out, and really helps them focus. Wow, that's beautiful, beautiful. Well, you know, I know we are getting to the towards the end of the hour, and I wanted to get a chance to talk about the work that you've been doing recently, not just, you know, with specifically since the war. And one of the things that really caught my attention when you were talking on the other podcast was that you you said how you communicate with your kids about what you're doing and the sensitivity that is needed to talk to our kids right now. I know that I am struggling with it, and a lot of my friends are struggling with it, that we're talking to each other. What is really the right thing to do when it comes to explaining what's going on? And you, like me, have kids who are a little bit older and a little more mature, perhaps. Um, my youngest is 14. You said your youngest is 13. But even so, they're sensitive, they're, they're still developing, and when you are being faced with something that is so overwhelmingly evil and traumatic, and then seeing it in in the US, we're seeing it in our own communities. We're seeing people who are acting out and doing unspeakable things even here, and and the anti-Semitism that has come out. And so I guess the discussion I'd love to have with you is first of all, I'd like our listeners who, This should be like a trigger warning, people should know that this could be difficult to listen to, but I think it's very important to bear witness to what you have done and what you saw in the aftermath of of October 7th. And then maybe we'll get into a little bit of a conversation about what does that mean for us as parents to introduce hard topics and deal with hard topics like this with children at a level that is appropriate and meaningful, uh, but not too much for them. So I guess with that maybe tell us a little bit about your work. I know a hadisha is preparing family is preparing the body for burial and you had said that you've been doing this for some years and took it upon yourself to help in the aftermath of October 7th. So why don't you tell right. us so a little about my, that? Right
1: so my the burial society in my area uh, was called upon after this horrible massacre where they they just did not have enough people to help prepare bodies for burial. And uh it, it was it was an just unspeakable amount of of bodies, obviously, an amount of work that had to be done in order to make sure that that the bodies were buried as soon as possible. So at least the families had some kind of closure before they they moved on to really face the tragedy that that they, you know, for the rest of their lives, they will never be able to recover from. So they, we, we were asked to go as a group, the, the women, the way it works is that women prepare women's bodies and men prepare men's bodies. So you can't, you know, say, okay, oh, the men will take care of this work and, and we'll do something and we'll bake cookies for the soldiers. The, there needed to be a group of women that could stomach the, the work that, that had to be done. And, and it was harrowing work and it was, you know, I, I, I cannot say terrible work because I, the, the way I saw it is that I was, really um, lucky to be of the very small group of women that were permitted to prepare these these bodies for burial because they what we understand is that if a jew is killed for the sake of god's name meaning just because they were jewish they're they're considered holy and their their soul goes sits directly at the throne at, at god's throne and i felt very fortunate to be able to escort these holy souls to their final resting place and the the work was was harrowing and difficult and exhausting we we worked through the night often to make sure that that the bodies would be returned to their families as soon as possible and obviously there was the difficult visions that we saw which i am not going to go into but our dear mothers and sisters, all the women of, of, of our nation were, were severely mistreated before that they were, they were killed. And um, I think that's enough details, but they, so we had to face that with each one. And we, as a group of women, you know, with each what body that, that we had to deal with, we would look at each other and, and discuss what would be the best, most respectful way to prepare that particular body for burial. And we were learning on the job because the, the Jewish nation has not been faced with this level of atrocity in a very long time. And uh, we kind of had to figure it out as we went along and with the highest level of respect for the woman or the little girl that was right in front of us and and we we did it together and we hugged each other a lot and gave each other a lot of strength and we actually have been getting together afterwards as well you know we're we're sisters now and and that's it my my son the soldier calls it trauma bonding he says that's why we soldiers are are such good friends whenever you know when my son gets together with his soldier friends they they just love each other and walking into the room meeting up with my fellow burial society, volunteers, we just love each other. And that's, and we give each other a lot of strength. Yeah. So that, that work was very intense for about a week. And then unfortunately, some of our Jewish families' bodies were so completely decimated that we don't actually have a body. And there's ongoing work to try to even find a little tiny piece of a body that can be buried with a gravestone on top of it but that's not work that we would be
0: doing wow the idea that 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 they would be so completely destroyed that there's nothing not even a little piece to bury is just it's just unfathomable it's yeah it, toward it's the hard, end of, the, of our week
1: of work <clears throat> the bodies were getting less and less obvious as bodies and as that happened, Eesh. we're saying, "Oh goodness, this is bad. Our work is very close to done, and there's still a lot of bodies that haven't been identified. We're missing. I mean, we got to eighty percent. We're missing twenty percent of the bodies that have not been that have not been identified yet or buried. And I know that there are people working literally round the clock on forensics in order to to get them wow. identified. But you know, as as the as the week of concluded. We were really getting bags of of, of ashes, basically like Holocaust level oh. destruction.
0: Yeah, yeah, wow! You have incredible strength to be able to go through that and then go back to. I mean, how does one go back to your day to day life after that? So, how did you deal with having a family and having a regular life after having seen such horrors? Well, there
1: were a few things that obviously the most important thing for me is my children's health. That's it. Like, I'm not going to do anything by choice that I will then, God forbid, cause them damage because I needed to do this or that mitzvah. Like that, That's not an option. Something that did help me a lot was that my husband also was doing the work. So we would come home. Often we went together and came home together. So we, would able, we were able to kind of talk through it together. You know, get into bed and just discuss what we saw and 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 absorb it. You can't absorb it. You can't absorb it. But what you can do is at least get it off your chest. I saw this today. I saw that today. And and again, no details, but I that was very helpful for us. What I was very focused on was not using my children as therapists. And that's something we all have to be focused on. You have to find your adult people to talk to, all of us. And um, because it's not fair to them. And there was one point at which one of my, I think I said this to Carolyn Glick, one of my kids was fighting with another kid and I just burst out like, do you know what's going on in this world and you care about chocolate? And I was like, oh my God, that was a terrible thing to say. They don't have to be absorbing what's going on. They have to be living their lives. Now there's awareness, their brother is is in gaza so they're they're you know they they have the neighborhood and where i live we're all combat soldier mothers and and half the neighborhoods in gaza at this point and so they know it and they're they're praying all the time and they're saying to him all the time but do they need my emotional outburst on them absolutely not so i must protect myself so that i don't harm them by finding my people to talk to that that's a number 1 number 2 I want to share with them but not the details the minute the war broke out I blocked all my kids social media I don't want them seeing anything not because I don't want them to know what happened because I they're going to know what happened and that you know too bad on me and I can't shield my children from the reality and unfortunately just now we were all standing down on the road because we were we were holding flags because we were waiting to add a respect for a funeral that was passing through my area Gushet-Sion, has had a tremendous amount of casualties and just this weekend we've had three casualties two of them are brothers of of girls in my daughter's school and father of uh, a girl in my daughter's school so there's no way to avoid it but we have to protect our children from our heaviness and we also have to protect them from images and even descriptions of images. They don't need that because you can't wash it out of your eyes. It's stuck there forever. But what we do need to talk to them about is make the space, and we, we've been, kind of my friends and I have been laughing a little bit about it, is Friday night dinner is a therapy session in every single household, and that's good. Because we allow the children, we say what we're sad about, what we're worried about, we're frustrated about, and give that space for our children to share everything. We listen and we we let them be angry and we let them be sad and we let them say crazy things. Let's just wipe out this and wipe out. We let them be in their emotions without correcting them, without saying this is appropriate talk and that is not appropriate talk and and educating them, there's a place and time for that. And it's not now while the war is going on. And especially facing anti-Semitism, that is, that's terrifying. Here in Israel, we know who our enemies are, but until a month ago in happy, wonderful America, everybody loved the Jews and we were so well accepted. And you have no idea who's your enemy at this point. That must be sitting on your children's hearts so heavy I can't even imagine what they're going through so they have to be able to put that
0: out there you know to be honest I don't know if they felt that welcomed before I think they felt very comfortable before but you know I work with a lot of college students I'm the liaison to students from the just for one thing I do is I'm on the board of Harvard Hillel and I'm and I have meetings quarterly with the students just to get what's going on with them and The more identified kids are, the more they have been feeling for years. Whether it's comments in class about if you support Israel, then you support genocide, and whether it's these uh, apartheid walls that have popped up on campuses all over the country for many years now, where they portray Jews as Nazis, whether it's the demonstrations. I mean, one of the things that I'm working very hard here on is trying to have administrators at colleges understand that free speech is one thing and that can take place inside a classroom inside a forum inside a discussion group but having people have to run this gauntlet of passing by screaming people who are saying that they want you dead on your way to english class or having to face people who are speaking out in your physics lab is not an appropriate forum for this type of speech, and it creates an atmosphere where Jewish students do not feel like they can even go about their daily lives. And it it has been so much harder than you would imagine to convey this message that screaming public demonstrations that are advocating for violence are not what we are obligated to just because we honor the differences of opinion and the purpose of free speech that is it, it, that exists um, and as an attorney I understand sort of what the rules are that there's restrictions are permitted even for the government to restrict speech to certain times and places and manners but certainly the administrators at these universities and schools and townships can make their own restrictions but they they seem not to want to, and I think that that is really the hardest thing for people to deal with and the hardest thing for our children to deal with is why don't they want to see the end of this? You know they wouldn't want this for any other group. Why is it that they feel either inclined to or obligated to allow this type of hatred to flourish when for sure we would none of us would have allowed this to flourish let's say during the black lives matter period where there were a lot of demonstrations we would not have allowed this kind of hatred against a group and that i think is a, is a hard lesson for for kids and i think that it's very hard to understand that there's this age-old antisemitism and that it keeps popping up in different forms throughout our history. Even kids who are knowledgeable about Jewish history, it always seems a little remote. Like, well, it was those people at those times, you know, and we're better than that now. And, you know, we keep seeing that that people really aren't better than that. And that's a, that's a very hard pill to swallow. Speaking of pills to swallow. It, it,
1: it's a, it really is. And we also grew up in a generation where things were pretty good. Like, you know, post Holocaust, and never again, and all those solidarity Sundays, and the, you know, the the Jews being freed from from Soviet Russia. like we, we you know, there were so many highlights. <coughs> for the, I, I think that what keeps repeating in my mind, and it's something that I repeat to my children as well, is this moral clarity. and that's and and that's something that i I kind of faced head on preparing these bodies for for burial is that there are certain things that we say, no, no, that cannot be. They say, okay, so we're saying that the Palestinians would like to have their own land. That in itself has lots of caveats and questions. And, and uh, you know, we, we, it's, this is not the time or place to go into the history of who's right and who's wrong. But moral clarity means that a human body may never be violated in the ways violated. Moral clarity means that when Carol, the 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 interview I did with Caroline Glick, the the hate that that came in our direction from it, and I don't take it personally. You know, these are these are people lacking in moral clarity, meaning that you must condemn evil when you see it. You must condemn evil, and you must not ever justify it. And if our children could learn to differentiate good from evil and be able to always condemn evil. And and, just, and Israel does that all the time. Recently, there, there were people that had attacked an innocent Muslim and, and immediately that was condemned because that's unacceptable anywhere. But the fact the people that are writing in these nasty comments and, and screaming from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, those are the people lacking moral clarity. And we cannot associate with that. We can just stay focused ourselves on what's right and what's wrong and what's evil and what's goodness. And not only that, we can't get lost in this understanding that if we are extra kind to people who mean us harm, then maybe they'll start to like us and maybe everything will be okay. That will never happen. And we have... A Jewish understanding that we must always defend ourselves first. Well,
0: I think well, that that, I think that, is, that is what happened with the sounds? Sounds. I think that that's a good place to wrap up because that sums up what it means to be a parent more than anything. I think it is to teach your kids how to differentiate right from wrong and how to conduct themselves in a way that has clarity and has morality and is going to strengthen the world. And I I feel very passionate that parents and especially we mothers have an extremely important job to do. And, you know, raising children to be good people and to be successful, thank happy people who can live their lives in, in a productive way is an extremely important job. And I think that people don't necessarily understand that that is like a real mission that we need to undertake. And so I appreciate that you clearly have taken that mission very, very seriously there. And, yes. and yet not given up on any of that fun. And, you know, that is all part of raising a healthy human being. And what could be more important than creating the next generation of the world to be improving the world generation by generation. There is momish nothing like it. So, Amen. All right. Any final lessons you'd love to convey to our listeners, or I always give people one last shot if they want. There's something you might all have right. forgotten. But my, this is my,
1: this is my um, message to all the parents out there. Have faith in your children. Your children are a healthy, amazing children who could accomplish anything. You just have to have faith in them, look at them. Don't be nervous with all of these uh, diagnoses and people telling you from every corner that there's that there's something wrong with your child. Be curious, see what's going on for your child, ask questions and then get the right help you need, but know that your child is healthy and capable and is going to surprise you when they do incredible things and uh, just embrace them all the time and love wow. that
0: For people who are thinking about having one other kid, a lot of people go through that. Oh, should we have another one? You know, right. what do you say to those people?
1: <laughs> I'll tell you what I say to them and you you don't have to put it on. But what I do say to them is I've never met someone who regretted having that one extra cri- kid, but I've met a lot of women who regretted not having that extra kid. That's my only comment on that. That's perfect. All righty. <laughs> Thank you so All much, right. Abigail. All Take right, care. Bye
0: Bye love it love it mamish nothing like that message everyone listening should take that to heart and believe in your children I love it all right Abigail thank you so so much for coming on for taking the time from you know it's not like you're really busy with very much but you give such an important lesson in so many ways and I hope that our listeners will absorb it and appreciate it and Thank you, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Awesome.